this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. people ben here and welcome along to episode 108 of my podcast a small voice conversations with photographers you already know that that's the podcast you're listening to i know my chat this week is with irina rozovsky who i will introduce properly in a minute first of all uh usual thing please um don't forget if you're a regular listener you think the podcast is worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription of like a fiver uh, and if you prefer, make a large occasional donation at bensmithfoto.com slash a small voice. Do leave a positive review on iTunes if you've never done that. That would be great. And if you want a new website, let me know and I'll make you one with Squarespace. Oh. Thank you very much to those of you who responded to the Simon Norfolk episode. I got a number of interesting messages. Uh, many messages from people who found Simon's forthright, no bullshit style to be both entertaining and refreshingly honest. And they really enjoyed listening to him talk. Some of you hated it. <laughs> Some of you were very critical of him and of me. I might address a couple of those questions just for the hell of it. But first, a quick message from your sponsor. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the excellent Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph. That is a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist, along with a note card and print from an esteemed guest curator. Free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. All that, along with members-only pricing in their online bookstore and more. Makes the Charcoal Book Club the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. What is genuinely fascinating is how two people can hear the exact same conversation and come away with a totally different sense of the person who was talking, or even what was actually said. And I'm not saying that's a problem or anything, it's just an interesting fact with human beings. So for instance, one listener said he found Simon to be quite bitter and resentful. I personally didn't get the impression that he's either of those things. He was honest and forthright, as I said, uh, about some of the facts of life, but I didn't find him to be in any way bitter and resentful. Uh, I think the same listener uh, accused him of whining. I didn't notice any whining at all so you know what well, it's fine it's cool whatever but um someone else thought that simon was being self-righteous and pompous I, I didn't get any of those things really but that's maybe it's me so you know you hear what you hear i suppose there was also some concern by some people that simon had been unkind or critical or derogatory about the photographer joel to the point of his comments being slanderous. And that this gave me pause to question my own sanity because all I remember is Simon being nothing but complimentary about Joel, whilst admittedly making it clear that he wasn't a fan of his work per se. But, you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive. We all don't like certain people and we all do like certain people. Which brings me on to the criticism over on the clusterfuck of bile and vitriol that is Twitter. Uh, the home of what Mark Maron likes to refer to as the army of unfuckable hate nerds. I'm talking generally here, so like no names, but a couple of people suggested that 
um, the interview was fawning. I don't think I was fawning. I, I was very respectful of Simon's work and for his stature as a recognised photographer. But I, I try to be like that with everyone, to be honest, regardless of, you know, who they are or how experienced. You know, I come at it from that position. Anyway, someone thought I should have asked him why he didn't like Jerry L's work. I think that's a pointless question. Why does anyone not like anyone? You know, it's a very personal thing. Who cares, really? And there were loads of follow-up questions I missed, but there always are, every single time. I, I fuck up one way or another every single time. So, you know, I try to do better. Um, yeah, there is certainly, uh, yeah, there was criticism that I didn't press him hard enough. But anyway, God bless the people on Twitter who never put a foot wrong. I shall continue to strive to be more like you. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by the excellent finder.me, F-I-N-D-R.me, which is a two-sided marketplace for imaging professionals, providing clients with direct access to thousands of experienced photographers on a single platform, and in turn introducing photographers to hundreds of potential clients. Finder connects photographers with relevant customers based on location and type of photography services offered. Photographers can sign up quickly and easily and for free for corporate contracts at fixed rates, or they can set their own pricing to attract direct clients. And in contrast to some of their competitors, they do care about you as a photographer. They are committed to total transparency in the way they do business. And they are for everyone in the photography business, from wedding planners to artists. So if you are a photographer, regardless of which type of photographer you may be, go and open an account, start filling out your profile, and open up a whole new way of finding new work, finding new clients, and finding new opportunities. Join up for free at finder.me and get found. The other thing is that obviously I only hear from a certain number of people, so it seems like something is generating controversy when actually like 10 people are, you know, affected by it and everyone else is just going, oh, great, that was Simon Norfolk, really interesting. You know what I mean? Self-selecting kind of thing. So Irina Rozovsky was born in Moscow in the Soviet Union, grew up in the USA, having moved there with her parents at the age of seven. Irina makes photographs of people and places, transforming external landscapes into interior states. She's published two monographs, One to Nothing and Island in My Mind. Her work is exhibited internationally and is in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and has appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Harper's and Vice. Irina lives and works in Athens, Georgia, in the USA, where she and her husband, photographer Mark Steinmetz, run the photography project space The Humid, and Irina is represented by Claxton Projects. This is one of the chats I had at Charcoal Book Club's Chico Portfolio Review back in March, another of which was with Irina's husband, Mark Steinmetz, so that one will be coming up in a future episode, but in the meantime, please do enjoy this chat I had with Irina Rozovsky. So what's going on for you right now? What are you, um, are you working on anything in particular? As you were saying before I failed to turn the microphone <laughs> on, um, you had a baby two years ago, so you're in the midst of... Um, the thing that I had been working on most um, excitedly than I ever have was a set of pictures I was making re through repeated trips to the Balkans, mm. but then I had wasn't able to get back there, so now I'm trying to... You know, figure out a way to return, but um, so, but th that was the most cohesive group of f photos that I had been developing, and since then, I have been photographing in Georgia, where I live now, and I've started taking more seriously pictures that I take on a daily level with my iPhone, and also uh, like mini projects that I'll give myself assignments to do on the kind of you know weekly, daily level, yeah. 
So you, you like to set yourself little assignments to kind of keep yourself, keep your eye in or how? Yeah, I mean, I had up until this big life change where I had a baby and moved to Georgia and really had this kind of free, wanderlustful approach to escaping and photographing in, the, in a new context, cutting off from, you know, my daily life, but at the same time photographing whatever there was to photograph um, in any moment. But um, I've had to find a new way to work. Mm. So <clears throat> I'd, I'll see someone that's interesting while I'm, you know, paying for groceries and then I'll contact them and try to photograph them later. Or, you know, they're, they're, I just don't have the freedom that I had before. Yeah, so I've course. had to f- find alternative ways to work. And that's where the iPhones come into play because it's always there. Mm-hmm. And so any minute can present itself. Yeah. So the iPhone thing, has that, that's the, uh, quite a recent development that, that you suddenly kind of became interested in the prospect of using that as a kind of camera that you could, you know, do sort of serious I mean, I'd been photographing with a, f- I remember like the very first phone that could take pictures you know, starting to do that. And that, you know, I take every kind of photo seriously, but suddenly it's something that um, has as much value as, quote-unquote, a real picture. Mm. And um, I guess after the show or during the show at the Metropolitan where it was just all iPhone photos, realized that, you know, like maybe there's an audience, you know, or people would be able to accept that kind of image just as much, you know, um, Mm. So yeah, I think it's it. I'm taking it seriously, but it's also just the tool. You know, it's the tool that's at hand. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think we should maybe start at the beginning, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your kind of roots and and your childhood because you you were born in Russia, mm-hmm. but you moved to the states. I think when you were seven or something. I don't know if you remember any of your your kind of the, those early years before you came to America. Do you? I remember some stuff. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. kind of what, what kind of memories do you have? I remember standing on the balcony of my grandmother's apartment, and she lived in the center, and, uh, like, watching people go by toilet paper, and then, you know, seeing them walk in one direction, and then sometime later walk in the other direction, and they would have a rope that they would tie all the toilet paper rolls onto and wear it like this big body necklace. And I remember, you know, things like, they would bring the bananas from Georgia or whatever, you know, Georgia, the country, wherever they had grown mm. them, and going, like, running to them with my mom, and we would buy as many bananas as we could carry, and then stopping at a payphone to call our father, my father, and tell him we had just bought bananas. <laughs> and, um... Yeah. What was the sort of political climate at the time then, uh, you know, those, I guess we're talking about the 80s. Mm-hmm. I think it was just beginning to open up. You know, there's a little bit of perestroika in the air, and Gorbachev was in power, and um, I, I th- my parents were like oiling up to leave. Mm. Um, a lot of people had, st- a lot of Jews had started leaving, um, but there was still, you know, communism was strong, and there was still, you know, like this lust for materiality, materials, and clothes and my parents were able to travel to Germany and would bring back some stuff that um you know they they would sell like mm. 
um, Adidas things, and people were just so hungry for this stuff that they didn't have access to. Right, right. So there's a lot of like underground black market stuff going on. So how did you feel about moving? Because I guess what, by the time you're seven, you you know you're kind of old enough to have an opinion in a way about mm. you know what what you would prefer. So were you excited by the prospect? No, I wasn't granted an opinion. It was just what was happening. You know, you just have these. Um, people who are your parents and they're your universe and where they go you go and mm. you know you're not given the option of I just remember feeling very sad because my grandparents were staying behind right. and at that point no one knew that the um, the wall would fall and that the Soviet Union would break up so we were leaving uh, not knowing that we would see each other again mm. yeah. that was traumatizing but also you know, I remember sitting on the airplane, probably the first airplane in my life, and they gave me colored pencils and a coloring book, and that mm. was the Band-Aid. To yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? The salve, yeah. Um, because, you know, they were thinking at one point about going to Israel, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, how, what made them ultimately not do that and decide on I think on Israel station? was where people who weren't allowed to go to the United States would end up, mm. which was kind of almost ironic and hypocritical because your ticket out was the fact that you were Jewish and so you know your um, destination and I think everybody claimed that they were going to Israel but uh, either either those that really wanted to practice Judaism because they weren't allowed to in the Soviet Union would go to Israel or they didn't have enough relatives in the US to pull them over right right yeah because I mean, you know, I'm wondering about obviously that you know these formative experiences, are, you know, have a huge influence on on the kind of artist you end up becoming and the kind of work that you end up doing. And um, as a seven year old going over to America and having to sort of, I guess you you probably felt you know a desire to blend in and to to uh, assimilate. Is that um, what what was your experience of having to be the kind of new kid, as it were? Yeah, I mean, it's a I, it's just something that, you know, you carry around with you forever after the fact, but it, um, <clears throat> I guess it's a bittersweet kind of painful, um, thing to melt into, you know, you're you kind of, sorry, I'm brain dead. No, that's all right. Um, you've been, uh talking for hours no right. you're asking like very touching questions it's oh, yeah, sorry to find the words like i remember you know being in the grocery store with my mother and she'd be saying something to me in russian and i would pretend like i didn't know her i didn't speak her i didn't understand what she was saying right. or um i remember being in the bathroom of some public bathroom and a woman asked me where i was from and i said florida and she said where in florida and i said disneyland or disney world you know just this like ridiculous desire to not be yeah but it's not ridiculous it's, it's completely understandable so what at what point did the photography become an interest then um it was in high school it was probably ninth or tenth grade I had a teacher named Mr. Bouchal, and he ran, you know, he would open the door to, to this, um, you'd open the door and there would be this room that functioned according to completely different rules than anywhere else in the school, and it was complete chaos, and he would, you know, like um, bounce a globe, I think, around, and he was just always listening to NPR and playing the trumpet and seemingly had no control over what anyone did and all the 
students would teach each other how to print and he hardly set foot in the dark room and you know seeming to have no authority but you'd bring him the print and he would say more contrast less contrast but he just created this environment where I mean not just me but so many people like were it was just this magical place you know where um and people would just blossom and mm. I just spent more and more time there and you know before school and after school and just found any way to be there and then he gave me a, a little spy darkroom set that I set up in the in my um basement over the summer and just was printing and uh just really kind of became hooked mm. what kind of thing were you photographing I don't know, like old fences and... Um, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> chipping paint. And um, I think, of, you know, I've, I was really into Cartier-Bresson at the time and went to visit uh, my aunt in Amsterdam and we went to Paris and just, you know, like a, a few European scenes made me feel like I was communing with the Europeans. Mm. So did you then go on to study photography, like in, in a serious way? I studied no well in college I studied um French and Spanish and it was sort of a visual studies major in those languages and but I was always in the dark room and uh there was this red armchair in the dark room um and I would sometimes like spend the night on it you know I'd sleep a few hours and keep printing and then go to class in the morning and uh Oh, wow. So you were really all in then. I was really all in, but it just didn't, I didn't know that you could be a photographer. Like I coveted these few photographers that I knew, but I, it wasn't, it didn't seem like you could, mm. so it was we, something you, you could be. Were you sort of discovering photo books and that kind of thing at that stage? Were you sort of uh, immersing yourself in other, in other people's work? And a little bit. I had a, a professor who um, sort of took me under his wing. He, I, I mean, I, just because I was sneaking into the dark room, he noticed that I was there and then, I took, I think, a class with him and then became his teaching assistant. Uh, his name is Roswell Anger. He was a really well-known Boston photographer. And he started showing me photographers. And um, he showed me Renike Dijkstra. And I can't remember who else now at this point. But, mm. yeah, just, you know, started slowly expanding. But I think it was good that it wasn't too much at once. You know, it was like kind of more the flavor of things. Right, right. Um, it wasn't like a formal education. No. But just putting sort of, you know, these people into your... Yeah. M m m into to let it percolate through your kind yeah, of brain. Yeah, into the radar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but, you know, yeah, that, did you come to a point where you realized that it could be a, a job then? Because that's often, you know, this thing of, uh, as you say, you don't necessarily realize mm. at some point that it could it can be a, a professional or something that you can then, you know, go on to do. Was there was there a sort of inflection point where you were like, oh, actually, you know... I no, can't. never. It always felt like the secret... Um, crush you know that like would never be a possible thing I guess I never knew I had never known any real photographers and uh, it just wasn't something that I th even thought was a possibility it just always felt like uh, like the secret love affair you know and um, so after college I had a number of jobs like I would go all the way across town to teach Latin American girls in Spanish and after school art program and get like $45 a week, you know, they're just ridiculous, like, you know, unsustainable ways to live and photograph meanwhile. And then um, hmm. it took a long time to realize that this is something I had no choice but to do seriously. Hmm. 
Did you get, get to a point where you started getting doing kind of jobs, commissions, you know, editorial work, that kind of thing? When did that sort of start to happen? I was an assistant for a while uh, before going to grad school. I ran this after I got uh, this job fell into my lap where I was a director of an after-school program for African refugee kids, and uh, we built this big photo program with them where it got fo- you know camera donations and had a had a photo exhibit at the local museum, and um, that was a big turning point for me. You know, it mm. felt like oh, there was a way that it I could share something about photography and then at the same time I was f- assisting some photographers in town and I would you know f- carry this some lamp posts or I mean l- lighting equipment and um and then everything I did just made me want to do more photography on my own and then I went to grad school and um you know my parents like strangely absurdly supported that mm, did they yeah and uh, actually, after right after I finished gra- undergrad, I was sitting at their kitchen table with like my head in my hands. I had no idea what to do with my life because I had this pointless major, you know, French and Spanish. I mm. thought I'd have to be a translator. <laughs> and then um, this letter came in the mail that with my name on it, and it seemed pretty official. And then it said, "We have a job for you," you know. And I was like, "Oh, my prayers were answered." I like God <laughs> found a job for me and it was like a knife salesman door to door to door you know you like make appointments with people and sell knives yeah that's funny I've heard I've heard of that I don't know what I don't know why that's a thing why is it knives you know it seems so arbitrary <laughs> Tup- but yeah. Tupperware and yeah. knives huh so then like when did you first start what was your first sort of major project then you know something which was uh you know a kind of relatively long-term undertaking that you you sort of you know did off your own bat I think I had never really worked in projects. It was just photography was, I mean, there was a camera with me constantly and I was just photographing what was, what came my way. I mm. didn't, didn't know how to work in projects. You you did a thing about Prospect Park in Brooklyn, which yeah. was, you know, kind of, I guess your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, that came a little bit later. I think the very first time that I knew th- that there was a start and finish was when I got to Israel and I knew right away that it would be something that had to be a book. Um, that was 2008, I think. You're talking about One to Nothing. One to Nothing. Which did become a book, yeah. yeah. So, well, let's talk about that. You, you, As you say, you went to Israel, and, and it suddenly, I don't think you were intending on it being a project. So well, what took you there in the first place? Was it just a holiday, more It was just holiday, a holiday thing. I had a cousin there, and I you know, went with some other cousins and brought some film and a camera, obviously, like I did everywhere, and all the time and um this was just you know like a huge discovery mm. it just like fell into the lap of this, like pivotal mm. point so it was a very kind of just a visceral kind of instinctive thing that just mm-hmm. hit you because i think you said you know you can hardly put the camera down so mm-hmm. that must have been pretty powerful mm-hmm. yeah but what was it about it that you know mm-hmm. elicited such a kind of powerful response in you have you thought about that I think you know I had been preparing for it like kind of subconsciously you know I had um maybe somehow all the time been working out in my head what it means to have been Jewish and gone from one place and sort of the Jewish um lot of being a constant refugee you know since the beginning of time and uh just that I had 
landed in the U.S. and that was like this lucky place to have been and that maybe I would have possibly been landing in Israel, but it didn't feel like just, you know, a personal story whatsoever. It seemed like I was a drop in the bucket of this enormous long history and that I had kind of arrived in this hot, dusty landscape that was like the belly button of civilization. And um, it wasn't an idea. It was just, you know, these things were kind of like landing on my head. Mm. And um, it was also this shock of seeing being face-to-face with something that you hear so much about at a distance and think you have some opinion about, but then you see how complex and tangled Mm. things are when you're confronting them, but also how kind of um, caricature-ish and, you know, funny things seem. Mm. So you you wanted to sort of show the complexity of the place in a way, but how how did you kind of set about trying to do that? You know, how does one even begin to do that um i mean it was it was through observation it was um i don't know i mean it seems you know that we always take a stance or a position that you hear about palestinians and israelis and you know it's always like we treat the news and like we do today you know here like the democrats versus republicans there's always two sides it just seems so arbitrary and childlike to think that there are two sides and there's a good guy and a bad guy. And um, when I was there, just realized, you know, I had so much empathy for both sides Mm. or for the conflict in general and that every scene I saw somehow reflected back to how kind of pathetic this fight is, this constant tension, how it's at the root of like kind of human existence that we always need something to be in opposition with and how there's like a rejection of being at peace and how, you know, because this, there's like a, oppositions like the, at the root of this place, I thought, well, if this place is sort of our beginning, then this is who we are, you know, it was sort of um, the heart of it. Yeah, I I'm, I'm presume you, you came across Palestinians and Israelis, you know, that you met a kind of cross-section of people. Yeah, yeah, I met so many, such strange cross-sections that I didn't even even know. You know, there are Ethiopian Jews, and then there are like these African-Americans that went back to Israel because they claim to be the very first Hebrews. And then there are Sephardic Jews who are mistreated by Ashkenazi Jews, you know, that within, you would think that within like just the Jewish clan, there would be solidarity, but there's racism and anti-Semitism amongst Jews. And um, so it's like even before you get to the Palestinians, there's a whole lot of discord. You start to realize how complex and and nuanced the whole thing is. It's like brother against brother. Yeah. So and but you were yeah like you say you were basically with with your with your cousins so so you know you kind of it wasn't like a solo thing but you went back again about a year mm-hmm. later or something so is that when it sort of started in earnest or had you had you already did you decide almost immediately the the first trip that you were you know this could be a um, a project yeah I knew right away that it would be, like I came back I I went and I shot more film than you know I had I think I was there for ten days or two weeks and I shot more film than ever. For, than I had for a long time before that and came back and knew that I st- I started editing a you know the sequence into a book and then returned to make more pictures right right brought those back to plug them in I wanted to ask you about the idea of um you know kind of allowing for serendipity and and and, and you know for having a plan but but being open to that uh, 
being completely derailed, you know, mm. and, and and going in and in perhaps in a in a different direction. Could you m- maybe just talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I've never been able to fulfill a plan, and but I always try to have a sort of loose plan, or I want to have a plan, you know, have this. I think sort of like uh, not fulfilling your desires is what you, the frustration of not fulfilling your desires is what drives you forward, you know, and like makes you shift what you want. And I, I'm, you know, I always find something along the way or I feel like frustrated that I don't get what I want, but something else come comes about. Um, I think that's what photography is best at, you know, that you, you, especially photography of the world when you're interacting with people and there's time and weather and circumstance. Um, Mm. It's a, yeah, it's a kind of dance with chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you've got an example or two. Was it a shepherd who was um, driving these sheep to slaughter? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that was a moment when, you know, it happened um, unexpectedly. I suppose, you know, most pictures one way or another do happen unexpectedly. Yeah, I think every, you know, you're flipping through this and I'm looking over your, uh, their pictures are upside down as I see them. But I think every photo is a, is in fact made that way. You know, there's a, there's a serendipity. There's nothing completely controlled about them. All I can control is the exposure and where I'm standing in the frame and throw myself wildly at, at the hope of what the image can hold. And, you know, it's, you kind of put out, throw out a net and hope that something comes out and then the the meaning is peeled out after but the picture of the the guy with the sheep is um we were driving behind him this was the second trip and it was incredible you know just to see the these furry things walking along the side of the highway we're up north and um i think i was driving and i jumped out of the car and ran in front of him and I think maybe he even offered like oh do I want to ride on the donkey and it just seems so beginning of time you know a guy with a donkey leading the sheep and the sun was bright and it was throwing shadows and they looked like so blissfully happy all bunched up together walking along and then someone told me that they were walking along slaughterhouse Mm. drive and that they were going you know he was dropping them off at the butchers yeah so you know that process of um i guess driving around and you know is that is that integral to how you like to do things is that something that you've kind of maintained with other projects since that you know that, that there's something about moving about you know that that sort of helps your creative yes. process yes yes i think there's something that starts um flowing through momentum you know i th- i think this uh, maybe it's my personality that I don't like to linger. I don't like to wear out my welcome. It's like I just want to pass through. Um, I think a lot of photographers have this tendency to return again and again and to deepen the relationship and to uh, go deeper. And Like I want to go deeper but not stay longer. <laughs> so there's like the ability to just cruise in and cruise out or pass through and be able to see something from a distance and then drive towards it and realize that it's not what you hoped, you know, the Don Quixote, like spotting the yeah. windmill. Um, I mean, that's so much part of it, you know, the, the disappointment of mm. disappointment that turns into, you know, having to, you know, like make it work. Right. Right. And, you know, yeah, the momentum of travel and of movement is, yeah. you know, kind of, creates a certain creative momentum as well Mm -hmm. 
But um, maybe can you just tell us uh, a little about the title and how that came to be? Well, one to nothing. Yeah, I don't know how. Oh, yes, because well, I knew this picture would be on the cover. The two guys wrestling, and um, I knew they were coincident. You know, just because we're talking, I can tell you they're brothers, and they were both um, semi-professional wrestlers, oh, right, and yeah. they. I mean, how much more perfect, you know, on the on the shores of the Dead Sea, you know, Cain and Abel fighting, and um, yeah, but they're locked into this like hug, you know, that helps them. But well, just to kind of inter- interrupt before, mm. you know, while I'm thinking about, does does do these things, you know, kind of occur to you later in the process when you're editing, and, and uh, uh, you know, these kind of metaphors and these, you know, these kind of deeper levels of meaning, or do they do they sometimes occur to you at the time, you know, that you've come across something which, which is a you know a very kind of neat, um, you know, metaphor or you know allegory or whatever you want to say. I think something rises to the level of metaphor only if it starts as a. It can't start as a metaphor and end as a metaphor or it doesn't work it doesn't work that way i think it's almost like i don't play basketball or anything you know it's sort of like if you're i don't know do they know that they're gonna get it in the basket you know they're like mm. it's it's a hope right i mean they're like you know the three-point shots like they're putting everything they can in but they don't do they have a certain like they don't know for certain it's a it's not a guarantee that it's going to go in and they're going to get that shot so it's kind of a you don't know, you don't know, you know, you just have a kind of inkling or an instinct and then they get it in the basket and like, there it is, mm. right? I mean, there's, um, no, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't seal the meta- metaphor in no, beforehand. No, no. But, but the title know, was there. Yeah, one to, sporting, uh, you know, the sporting yeah. analogy being appropriate because one to nothing, you know, is like a score, right? It's yeah. one ni- nil. Yeah, t- sorry, I interrupted. But, well, no, it was the score of, like, w- one side having one point and then the other side doesn't have a point and so they lose, but somehow it's, like, just one point that sets winning from losing and nothing somehow is, you know, both devastating but liberating, you know. It's like when you've got nothing to mm. lose. Hmm. So, did this book have quite um, quite an impact? Because in terms of you know putting you on the map, as it were, because um, I think it didn't it win win one of the book dummy awards um, before you actually had it properly published. Um, no, it was the Cuban book that won that oh, was published through the Castle book dummy. Oh, award. okay. So this this one, mm-hmm. okay, this one, because I, I then I got the impression that maybe both of them had um, done that, but it certainly it had quite a lot of critical um acclaim this book and a lot of people noticed i think it got onto quite a lot of best books of the of the year lists and i'll take that (laughs) yeah right uh well you know it's uh you know these little things are ways to uh you know kind of encourage no i I came to class one morning and one of my students was like did you see the news did you see the news and i thought like some something horrible had happened and it was like alex soth put your book on the list yeah yeah well also when it's someone like you know yeah like him um let's talk a little bit about island in the mind in my mind then which is which is you know your book about cuba um a very different kind of place altogether but you hadn't been before when you first went to. No, and just, yeah. I hadn't been. What, what what took you there? I mean, it was really similar. It was just like uh, my friend called it like the one-two punch. You know, you go on a whim, and then something happens, and then you know, you, 
a little explosion and then you go back and hope for another explosion. Right. It was strangely similar in the sense that y you had a bit of a kind of epiphany in yes. the sense that it struck you immediately that, that there was something there you wanted yes. to photograph. So yeah. maybe that's a thing for you that, you know, yeah, yeah these things happen. But what, um, you know, I guess with Cuba, one immediately thinks of the visual cliches, which are so prevalent and so that we all know so well. Was that on your mind that you obviously you would try and seak to avoid those? Uh, how, how did you know? How did you think it's about? It's not that I consciously tried to avoid them. It just so there was so much more there that I was surprised. What else was there doesn't get pictured so often, or I guess I wasn't even thinking about the. I mean, I did photograph those cars, to tell you the truth. I have a lot of pictures of those oh, cars. Did. But in different ways, you know, like I have, they just seem sort of like field paintings. They're like Mark Rothko's, you know, they're all those, like the colors and the textures and the shapes of those cars. And the, you know, you, you never, you always see them as like these shiny things, but they're actually like patched. There's so many patches on them. So they're, I have a lot of photos of just like pure color, you know, the turquoise of those cars. But, um, there's just there was so much more there you know and the place appeared to me like such a mirage in the desert you know that it has these bright colorful um it's like who, who are those the sirens mm. in you know that call you in and they attract you with the color and then they don't release you they somehow like take possession of your soul or mm. your heart and it just made you know the music and the the lifestyle it kind of like attracts you it's so seductive and then this really dark miserable thing opens up you know it's sort of like hades or something so again and, and the process was quite similar was it that you wanted to you know you jumped in a car and you and you traveled around or what, what did you kind of focus on no i didn't around? drive it you know you're it's a little bit more limited but the first trip was strictly in havana and then the second trip i was by myself the first time i was with a friend the second time i was also in Havana, and then um, took a, the Hershey train out to another city. But uh, I didn't really travel so much around, but it seemed like there was so much just, you know, outside the door. Mm. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the kind of editing and sequencing process and how, how important that is in relation to the actual shooting. You know, d how do you feel about just kind of how essential that is in your particular process? I think it's been key with these first two books and this third one that I'm, you know, starting to plan out. Um, it's key, you know, what follows what is important in that it's like words that are, you know, shape, shaping a sentence or shaping a poem. Um, you know, when I was, I had the stack of Cuban photos and I dropped them by accident, two pictures ended up side by side and one of them was uh, horizontal that ended up vertical next to a whatever you know what I mean like mm -mm. to a missed orientation next to another one and it just seemed like this it's the first um, sequence in the book where the pictures are misoriented and it seemed like oh of course you know they were showing me something it was like tarot cards that this dog that had been photographed horizontally suddenly suddenly could look like it was going running up a wall of the picture next to it and it was it's so much echoed how I felt about the place that it was this topsy-turvy against the rules that the rest of the world followed, you know, that it, perhaps a dog could walk yeah. up a wall here. Yeah. And and 
again, as, uh, we, we've already sort of said that one did win the Castle Book Dummy mm. Award, and then I, I presume what was the how was the process of of bringing it to fruition? What what was that like for you? For, for you, I got a call. It was really early in the morning. They got a call from Germany from a guy named Richard, who's who's been like one of the best people I've ever met, of like the strangest character, and um, he said that he had seen the book and that it was it won the award and he was going to publish it and the dumb make the dummy into an actual book and he said this thing that I couldn't get off my out of my memory he's like I could feel the in the German accent I could feel the wind in your photos or like I could feel the heat in your photos and like feel the sun on my skin and you're in looking through the book and um then we just, I went to Germany and we, you know, would send them, you know, I had a couple different versions and the, the main thing was keeping it exactly as the way the dummy was. So what you're seeing in the final book is exactly how I had planned it. Okay, guys. Well, I was going to ask you that, you know, whether it changed at all. Or, or, the sequence you know. changed a tiny bit, mm. a tiny bit. And I think I, well, I wrote an introduction or maybe I had already written the introduction, but um, it's pretty much the same as when I had submitted it. You've already kind of mentioned it in passing, but you ended up going to the Balkans. Um, mm. I think Macedonia maybe was the the, the way the way it started. Well, in fact, in fact, actually, I I did read you saying that. Oh, we met in yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you you, you the, the project I'm talking about is, is Mountain Black Heart, um, uh, which is what it ended up being called. But um, you went to the Organ Vida Photo Festival yes. in Croatia, yes. which which is where I first met you um, very briefly. It's very cool. And um, and again, same thing. You you <laughs> went. Oh, you you thought you were just going to a to a photo festival, but actually, something something grabbed you, mm-hmm. uh, caught your attention, or or something sparked. You know the creative impulse. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was or how that happened. Yeah, I guess. I mean, talking to you, I'm realizing that like my life in America is sort of a. Uh, I feel like I'm on hold or something and all these places I come back to where I feel something so powerful it always brings me back to some sort of roots and not that I want the work to be at all an exploration of that but it's a place from which I can look out mm. and where you know the places where I feel something powerful is somehow reminds me of I don't know like some sort of beginning and so there was you know that time that I was in Croatia where we met um it was this weird in between, like it wasn't quite Europe in the in what I had seen of Europe, and it wasn't quite Russia and what I remembered of Russia, but it was this sort of in between, and it felt familiar and yet knew that you know everywhere I looked was something to be discovered, and the like the people I met just had this kind of energy that I felt very you know was very appealing, like it was uncensored, mm. you know, and it was on the verge of some sort of um explosion and um you know in contrast to how i perceive you know like the typical american interaction and so yeah i just went one summer i went to um serbia i got vice magazine actually allowed me to go photograph this um the biggest trumpet festival and i showed up there and i spent like two days and then you know decided i needed to get out of there and rented a car and there it began. Right, yeah. So where else did you did you end up going as part of that I went overall to project? that first time I was in Montenegro and 
um, I think I dipped into Slovenia, just like on the border and Croatia on the border. You know, they're also close together and mm-hmm. kind of puzzle pieces. And um, and then the second time I went to Macedonia, or, you know, when I went back to Macedonia and um, a little bit of Albania and a little bit of Greece. And yeah, I, I don't remember. I, I went a number of times. Mm-hmm. So, and that did become a book, right? Not yet. Or not yet. No. Are you... Pl- hoping to mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. is there is there a plan afoot or you don't want to you don't want to no i'm anything? just and my plan afoot is that i um want to make more pictures okay. but i think i'm i'd like to start you know seeing what what i have now and see how the pictures interact with each other but no i'd, I'd really like to keep making photos you know like whereas the first two books it was a one-two punch this feels mm-hmm. more drawn out okay right but it is an ongoing thing so you know it's very much mm-hmm. Uh, you know on your on your kind of agenda right now i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and but you're also teaching is that is that your kind of day gig are you are you still involved in in i'm in teaching education? very lightly now i'm oh, teaching uh, because you because you you became a mum. so uh, yeah, that, yeah there was more teaching before the baby right now i'm teaching the baby how to yeah <laughs> how to say please and thank you right yeah how has that experience changed things either generally or in terms of you know your approach to photography if you mm-hmm. maybe you could maybe you could talk a little bit well, about well i mean it's time you know your time is so different and you want it to be different you know and i i want to belong to my child and but at the same time i like andrea said today i feel depressed if i don't photograph and so things have it's been challenging it's been very challenging but um you know you adjust and you find ways to be everything at once and find photographs or let photographs find you on a daily level um that's where the phone's been very key and you know i always have a digital camera at home so that's on and so i you know i i feed the child and then whatever she doesn't eat i leave there and then it starts to rot and then i take it on the porch and the sun shines in a certain way and i pop the flash and i take that picture and then i go back inside and you know i take out the trash and something looks interesting and i you like throw it up in the sky and then I take a photo of it landing and then I throw out the trash. You know, it's like mm-hmm. very, um, like the domestic indicates what the photos yeah. are to be taken. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of, I guess, I, you know, I very often ask people about, um, you know, the very practical um, but important question of, um, you know, the, the income pie chart and how the hell one manages to you know to earn a living so so mm-hmm. you, are you obviously the the, the baby is is a, always going to be an issue for everyone as far as that goes <laughs> because that's a, you know that's just you know but but until um, you put it to work yeah you are you um kind of up for doing um you know commission work or or working on 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 you know editorial things or whatever because you know some people very much enjoy that other people see it as a kind of necessary evil um so you know other people are kind of somewhere in the middle where, where do you sort of stand on that? i haven't done i've done a little bit of editorial i've gotten to make some portraits for the new yorker and uh new york times magazine and a couple of like you know short stories here and there but i've really enjoyed it but um i think you know i, I would like to do more stories if they would allow me to do them in a way that's natural mm. and to my liking i mean i think it's a good way to like you know exercise the muscle and to get pictures out in the world um 
if it's a photographable, you know, I really like, as you can tell, like dip in and dip out mm-hmm. of things that aren't in my real daily world. And so I think editorial is good in that way. But, um, you know, I used to make a living th- through teaching and now we're cobbling it together through um, sales. And we also are running this center now with Mark called The Humid. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so this is Mark Steinmetz, your husband, yes. who um, is also a photographer. So you're kind of, you know, you're, he's your partner in crime, and 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 you know, and and I guess it, I guess it must be really nice to, you know, have someone in your life who, you know, understands all the creative uh, nice. challenges and stuff. But you've got this little thing going on to, together, which is called the humid. Mm-hmm. Just explain to us. Well, that's about. <laughs> well, it's it is indeed humid in the south, so we yeah. decided to counteract it, just to embrace it. And so it's um it's our studio space. It's it's predominantly my studio space, and at the bottom there's this very large area with like you know tall ceilings and really good light and a, a big board to pin up pictures. And so we're bringing photographers that we really admire to teach like weekend workshops and we're teaching in part and um, Mark's teaching darkroom printing classes and I'm going to teach digital printing. And so, I mean, it's just a kind of labor of love and a kind of dream come true to be able to get people down to us. um, Mm, Fantastic. Yeah. That, you know, photographers and we've also um, are doing book signings and artist lectures and portfolio reviews. So mm. it's sort of our our um, second child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you did a little thing together, which was a kind of photo ping pong kind of, um, mm. I, I guess that's probably as good a term for mm-hmm. it as possible. But but it's a, it's kind of a fun idea where you where you sort of communicate with each other in, uh, in front of But were you already together at that point? Or did you just, like, what was the, <laughs> guess, not I think to it, pry, but, yeah. but it's interesting to, to kind of get a sense of, um, that isn't how you, how you met. No, no, it sort of began, you know, there's a kind of... Uh, the relationship began over the course of that um, right photo okay. thing, and so uh, it was instrumental. In, it was in in, some way. it was it was definitely a you know, maybe not instrumental, but it was definitely the arena, you know, of a little back and forth. And I think once we moved in together, and um, it just sort of died off. I think the distance, yeah, was uh, instrumental in keeping those pictures yeah. going. So you yeah, and you're in you're in um, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, the state not the country <laughs> and so yeah what what, what what are your impressions of this of the south and you know how how do you like it down there i've grown to really like it i can say that in full confidence it was really hard at first i think i'm reluctant to change and um you know especially the like becoming a mother and moving at the same time it was like everything was different and um but what a liberating way to like f- you know find your footing and not be locked into who you had been mm-hmm. and um it's very uh, i find a kind of a mysterious dark place that's nice on the surface you know it's very um like people are quite slow and friendly but you know when you think about the history and what had happened in that place just not that long ago and how you know those socio um patterns are still at play it becomes immediately dark mm. You know, um, are you thinking about, you know, making work? I mean, obviously you're constantly making work, but um, is does it is it inspiring um, you to think in terms of you know something 
to get your teeth into that there, where, you know, where you're now based? I'm trying. I've been trying, like, you know, the assi- assignments I mentioned to you that I give myself. I've been trying this and that and, um, uh, like, failing to make, a, uh, throw myself into a full project, but finding, like, you know, pictures in, in different contexts. And I think it's going to be slow and it'll take a while, but they're all kind of revolving around, I don't know, uh, like, kind of this different way of being in in a place you know where um it's so hard for me to describe but there's a lot of animals and there's a lot of nature and um strange bodies Mm-mm. so I'm, I'm i should let you go um because <laughs> you must be knackered but um i'm glad to, cu- to hear the word knackered <laughs> a couple of uh, a couple of Last last questions. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to your twenty year old self um, in retrospect, if you can think back to you know how things were, and then and also maybe we'll go with tw- a thirty year old self as well. So, what what tips would you give to those two people? I'm so lucky and happy with the way things turned out, you know, and I think I had so many miserable moments and like hopeless moments. No, I was not, I never lost hope, but I think it's really good to be lost, you know, because then you teach yourself to, I don't know, like crawl out somehow. And if you're never lost, then you kind of are just always in this neutral, like gray town. And so I don't know, I don't know. I mean, that it'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm. I feel really blessed to live this life and be with Mark and have a kid and continue photography and be here to talk to you. And I, you know, maybe I would have suggested to read more. Yeah. Um, that can never hurt. No. Yeah. What What do you think your main strength is as a, as a photographer, and and maybe also what what what's your main weakness? I mean, maybe they're both the same thing, you know, like you said, the plan, the plan issue, like it's hard for me to carry out a plan. And, um, you know, my father always said, uh, like, you know, you'll be a professional photographer when your pictures are more focused or uh, when you can really analyze something. And I'm, I think I'm trying to, like, crawl my way towards this other way to analyze something, you know, I, I want. Uh, it's not an academic analysis and it's not a um, lyrical analysis, but I, you know, I don't know, mm. I guess maybe metaphysical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Irina. Okay. I enjoy talking to you and I appreciate you giving me the time. Likewise. Thank Thanks you so much, much Ben. Mm-hmm.